and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka and I'm in conversation with Catherine Cooper. Catherine has dedicated her career to the logistics industry, serving the last 20 years in top leadership positions. At the moment, she works with senior executives from Fortune 500 companies, private equity firms, and global logistics service providers to develop resilient supply chains and innovative solutions at the intersection of technology and people. The vaccine distribution has obviously taken up a large part of the conversation in recent times. Um, what I want to know is how that's impacted other parts of the supply chain. Uh, and for that, I'm in conversation today with Catherine. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here. I agree the, the vaccine response has been absolutely impressive and amazing. Um, the way they've done the, the logistics and getting that rolled out. Um, from the biopharma developing the vaccine so quickly to the to the distribution of it. Um, so without all my uh, admiration for that, my work though focuses on the other side of the supply chain, helping clients um, overcome the rising supply chain obstacles that are due to the vaccine uh, distribution and just the COVID pandemic at large. Um, can you maybe help us understand uh, the magnitude of the impact that the pandemic has had on supply chains. Um, maybe if you can talk about, you know, what has changed in supply chain between March of last year uh, and March now? The impact in supply chain has been, you know, astounding in the examples are just, are just numerous. But I think if we step back and take a macro view of it, it helps us understand why that is the case. Um, the economic global growth in 2019 was 2%. And it's pretty much been that year on year on year until last year. So they're projecting this year, it's going to be 4.2, but it's important to know that's on a contraction of last year of almost 5%. So we're looking at an 8% swing there when we're used to two. Um, and that's in global trade and global growth. And so that's impacted um, supply chains throughout the world. Countries are trying to diversify their export markets um, to, to redirect and ha handle all this manufacturing investment that's moving around. And then companies in particular are seeking to diversify their supply chains um, due to the impacts that they've had. So. While COVID didn't directly cause some of these problems, certainly any supply chain weakness or area of vulnerability was exacerbated by it. Um, so pretty much every single supply chain in the world got impacted. Wow. Um, let's actually go back to the basics then. Uh, how do you define supply chain resilience? It's interesting because it, you know, the, the lexicon that we've been learning lately um, due to COVID, we learned what an essential worker is, um, social distancing. And then supply chain resilience, while that's not a new term, people are really starting to understand it or the impact of it. And it is the ability to quickly adjust. So it's, it's got to be a rapid um, adjustment to sudden, unexpected, disruptive changes in the supply chain performance. 
Um, so it can be a positive for the company. It could be excessive growth, mm -hmm. uh, such as, you know, PPE equipment or sanitizer, but it's still a negative to the supply chain performance because they weren't prepared for it. And it could be negative to the company, such as entertainment, Disney World, car, auto parts, things that really died off where they didn't ship it. So it doesn't really matter about the company's performance as far as their um, bottom line. It's the supply chain's ability to meet the sudden surges or disruptive changes. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, uh, you know, that is obviously what uh, supply chain resilience is. Can you maybe share some light on how uh, to make that happen? So there's, if you break it down, there's about uh, five kind of accepted tenets that people talk about when you do this, but they all don't apply to every company. But generally, it's increasing the inventory levels, but not just of your, raw, of your final product, it's raw material, it's work in process. So it's, it's padding the inventory throughout the supply chain. It's adding manufacturing and storage capacity. Ability to surge has been really come up um, due to COVID, ability to, to meet really um, spiky demands. And then suppliers, as we said, this was global. So much of our supply chain in the US has gone offshore and with the lean supply chain push we had years ago. So it's the capability of our suppliers to also meet the materials that we need. Um, so those, those are kind of the first components, data, real-time data, um, the value of information for supply chain control is another one that's particularly important for the um, early detection. We talk about the definition as rapid response, so it's getting the data to do that. And, and then redundancy, just building in redundancy, not just your inventory stockpiles, but with your suppliers and your routes and your ports. Um, so all of those things come into to being what we consider kind of basic tenets of, of supply chain resiliency. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, sounds clear and straightforward, uh, <laughs> but easier said than done, no? Um, I'm curious, uh, do you think that there are some industries that are more prone to disruption than others? So it's not necessarily just the industry. We certainly learned that with COVID because you can't say it's the food industry because what we had there was the, the restaurants, right? So, so they did not need to ship to restaurants. Um, so they had a glutton of food that wasn't going there, but yet those of us who were going to the grocery store kind of had that problem of the, of will there be enough protein or the meat shortage? So it, it's more the channel um, so you got to think of it in terms of the method, the channel, and the product, not so much the industry. When I say method, I'm talking about maybe the way you use your inventory and your method of pushing it out. So if, you're, if you have a push system, you need a lot of inventory. And your information systems and your transportation network is not so critical as your amount of inventory. But if you're a pull system, if we manufacture and then pull as, a, as the requirements are needed, transportation is very important because we're getting it there closer real time and then our controls of our systems are super important. Um, so you can have a lot of inventory, right? And But it might not be in the right place. Going back to the um, 
cold chain with all the school food, right? It was all set up to send to institutions and hotels and restaurants. So the food was just in the wrong place in the wrong channel for what it turned out to be needed for COVID. So I think it's more of looking at the, the channels and the product and the supply chain um, more than the industry of how it was affected. Right, that makes sense. So, I mean, the benefits are obvious, right? Why isn't it that everyone uh, just has a resilient supply chain or why is it that not everyone's, uh, you know, consciously thinking about it and doing something? Well, so we were originally, you know, the lean supply chain. And when we did that, it was making sure that we had operating margins and asset efficiency. And that's where we got a lot of our offshoring. Um, but because building a more resilient, you know, with more inventory, um, it, it's, it's more costly. And so corporate boards and shareholders resist them occasionally, especially when they're looking at the short term. So you can't, similar to, it's not an industry, you have to look at the channel. I think in this case, you still have to look at the company, right? So it depends on a variety of issues, such as the financial condition of the firm, the macroeconomic conditions, their reporting requirements, investor impatience. Um, there's a lot of things that serve as barriers to having this kind of longer term perspective of, of doing a resilient supply chain. That makes sense. I mean, um, this time last year is when, uh, you know, uh, things really started he heating up. Uh, the world had started going into a global lockdown. Um, I'm curious, when did you maybe first get that call when you realized, oh, my God, like it's 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 changing. It's going to be different. You know, what are your clients up to? What are they doing? Back in March, we were all kind of uh, dealing with labor issues, people weren't showing up to do the um, to do the distribution. So we would have maybe a warehouse that's going to go live that we couldn't get all the vendors on site. Either they were quarantined or many were in Europe. A lot of the automation vendors are there. Um, so it was dealing with kind of the labor side of it. But the um, the moment that I woke up, kind of the, wow, this is affecting so many other things, it was really due to the vaccine distribution. And so on November 9th, probably we all remember it well, because it made such press, but that's when Pfizer made history. They came out and said, we have a vaccine over 90% um, efficacy rate. And then it was approved, you know, the very next week. Um, it was, or actually a few weeks after that, but my call came the very next week because my client at that time, um, and still current, right? They're dealing, they do nerve repair. And so they have products to help surgeons for nerve repair, and nerve regeneration. That type of product has to ship, um, at ultra low temperatures. Normally, that could that comment have to be defined but i think we all heard you know ultra low temperatures and the negative 80 mm -hmm. and what that does for uh dry ice because it all became an issue with pfizer um, when they announced it they were the first vaccine so here goes the the threat up on november 9th everyone said well wait if they're going to take up all the dry ice and they're going to take up all the air cargo space because remember they got emergency authorization to distribute it what about the rest of us who use those negative 80 temperatures 
And that supply chain was, was fine before because it was perfectly mm. suited um, for that amount of traffic, right? But now they needed to, to absorb much of it for the vaccine. So the rest really got concerned about it. Um, I found out that, you know, as doing the research on this, well, who else uses dry ice? How else is this being shipped so that we could get some kind of scale for what the problem was? Mm-hmm. Um, found out, you know, Botox uh, ships on dry ice. So mm-hmm. at that point, I'm like, okay, this is getting very personal now. I really <laughs> care about the stuff shipping through the supply chain. Um, but what's neat is you got to go backwards a little bit. You talked about going back in time, but let's go back to April. Okay, so March And the important thing here that I would love to convey is this domino effect that's happening that's causing this. So when people understand there's not a quick fix because it wasn't a quick problem. Back in March, we did lockdown, right? So when lockdown, no one was driving. So there, you know, gasoline and jet fuel um, demands plummet. Yeah, so then what does that mean? That means that in June, the ethanol production stopped. They stopped the plants. They just closed many of the plants down. Yeah. But they provide the CO2 byproduct. Ethanol production plants provide the CO2 byproduct, which is the dry ice. Okay. So back in April, dry ice already was becoming a concern. And Jeff Cooper, who runs the Renewable Fuels Association, was reported telling the uh, meat processors, quote unquote, we're headed for a train wreck in terms of CO2 market. And that was all back in June and in April. Okay, so now let's come up to Q3. We're about to talk about the Pfizer vaccine. Uh The demand for dry ice in Q3 to Q4 went up 700%. Wow. And ultra cold freezers, the freezers that keep it at the negative 80, 800%. So if you're a client, if you're a con- well, uh, my client, but if you're a company that ships with that, that puts your head up. You were like, uh oh. So what's the first thing they did? Went out and bought all the freezers they could. Huh. <laughs> um, but we've spent the past few months really dealing with how do we make our supply chain resilient to deal with it? Because we talked about inventory at the beginning, and you can't stock dry ice. That's not an item that you right, can. Right, right. Um, yeah, do the inventory for. One of my absolute favorite quotes is from the CEO of Millican to help describe this. And he says that global supply chains are complicated. When you've seen one, you've seen one. And I think that is great for applying it here. I talked about the supply chain resilient tenants, but the inventory wouldn't apply to this one, right? So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. stockpiling inventory is just absolutely not the way we could do it. Um, so how we've done it is we are looking to lean in and leverage 3PLs and into their market. Um, FedEx and UPS also got, um, were on the forefront of this dry ice issue. Mm. And so they in, were you know investigating um, dry ice manufacturing at their respective hubs. And UPS said it could produce you know 24,000 pounds of dry ice a day. So this was, while it might not have made you know headline news for the dry ice issue, it certainly became an entire supply chain issue about temperature excursion parameters. Mm. I didn't know what that was until recently, <laughs> but it's you know maintaining these brackets of, of of temperature. How what is the range? How long can they be out of range before the product goes bad? 
And it's not just the feeder network. If we think about FedEx, for example, FedEx made you know the news along with the other national players for the vaccine challenge and distributing it. But they had you know the largest air cargo um, network in place, so they were able to get it out. But their challenge too was we can ship it. We've got all the feeders to go out there, but once it lands in you know the Permian Basin in Texas. Are there freezers there to put it in? So these steps go out further and further and further. So back to you know the the company that does nerve repair, their supply chain was working great for yeah. years. And who would have thought this would have been the dry ice? Back to ethanol production. Back to the fact that we stayed home and didn't drive our cars right. would have. Right. Wow. Um, I wonder. I mean, you know, we're we're almost uh, one year. Uh, to when the global lockdowns did happen. Uh, and there definitely is going to be, you know, uh, a whole, oh, this is how things used to be pre-COVID and this is how things are post-COVID. I'm curious, what kind of supply chain changes uh, you think will stay on post the pandemic? E-commerce for sure. And I think we credit that to the fact that we had forced acceleration, right? Everyone was required to use it. They talked about it. it was brought forward, you know, five to 20 years uh, forward. And that, you know, the numbers are staggering on the adoption that, you know, we had 10 years growth in three months time. But um, with the forced acceleration, we had forced experimentation. People had to figure out how they were going to do that. And then the general public had forced adoption. We broke habits and rebuilt habits. Mine personally was online grocery shopping. <laughs> I had never um, used Instacart food delivery, and now that's a habit. I do my grocery shopping at 10 p.m. at night with my phone in my hand. It's delivered the next morning. That is now a habit that I've developed um, through the, the forced process. So I think that the e-commerce side of it will continue, um, which is the which will drive a lot in supply chain, the automation for e-commerce. I think companies that did a lot of um, delivery to stores, let's say like a lighting industry, lighting fixtures, all the home improvement, right? We know that went crazy. All of us sat mm. around and saw the light that was broken that we'll finally fix. Mm -hmm. And so we would go to Home Depot, but now, so they would ship to Home Depot, the manufacturer. Well, now they were shipping to people's homes and Home Depot, for example, would do a lot of you pick up at the store, handless, um, you know, contactless delivery. So everything had to be packaged in the unit to, to not be stored on a shelf, but actually delivered um, to the person's home. So I think that you've got to think about it um, in terms of that's not going to go away. So I yeah. think the company's ability to handle both channels. Um, and I think also not just e-com for parcel, right? Amazon, uh, don't need to give them a shout out. They don't need one for sure for how amazing <laughs> they've done. But, you know, you think about the restaurant and the, the way that works with new e-commerce. So if one third of the food now, they're estimating one third of the food to all restaurants is off premise, taken off premise, not eaten there. Well, when you change that logistics model, right? You change the labor efficiency inside the restaurant. You change mm -hmm. the rent efficiency of the restaurant. The economies of all of it just changes. Yeah. Um, so I think while we'll go back to eating at restaurants, um, I think just the idea of e-commerce in general has taken such a hold that in supply chain, um, you will no longer see 
companies building out warehouses without that e-com channel being yeah. part of the network. Yep. That makes a whole bunch of sense. Yeah. You know, a lot of it driven by, you know, just change in personal uh, consumer behavior. Um, let's maybe zoom out a little bit and look at this from a slightly macro lens. Um, what do you think, uh, you know, the U.S. has learned as a country uh, with respect to logistics? Oh, wow. I think that would go straight to the foreign sourcing, particularly exacerbated by the medical side. So many of the medical supply chains for the U.S. are offshore. Um, I think the statistic is, you know, 80% of the active pharmaceutical um, generic drug manufacturers are located offshore. So that includes antibiotics, um, blood pressure medication. So if all that's coming offshore, right, and we're having this global lockdown of other countries, and then we don't mm -hmm. get our shipments coming in, it's certainly showing our reliant on the import of these goods. And then we started seeing, oh my goodness, that might be a national risk and an economic risk for for our from the human side of not getting um, not getting the the critical products that we need. So I think that you know the resiliency and agility is becoming um, just as important, if not even more, than the sole criterion that we used to use, which was just efficiency and cost. Uh, I'm assuming governments are realizing this as well, right? Like, what do you think their role is, uh, or what is it that they're doing uh, in regards to this? Well, it's you know all over Capitol Hill now. You read about the policymakers that are calling for supply chain of critical goods and for it to be reshored. Now you can't reshore everything, but certainly there have been multiple Senate hearings to examine the integrity and the reliability of these critical supply chains uh, due to the pandemic. And is there a way the US government can promote more resiliency um, for these? In February, uh, just a few weeks back, uh, the president signed an executive order to um, to boost manufacturing, but the intent is to strengthen U.S. supply chains. Um, and so pharmaceuticals got grouped into that. It was normally, you know, semiconductors and critical minerals, um, but the health side of it has certainly, certainly risen to be the top of being uh, critical. So it's kind of neat to see that that's, um, we're not as extreme as, you know, the China, um, mm -hmm. therefore, you know, they're building out the Belt and Road, which is mm -hmm. just, an enormous initiative on their side, but it's really um, comforting to see that our government will at least help protect the health side of our supply chain um, and if not reshoring, but making more resilient some of these medical supplies that we realized how reliant we are on external um, with all of these changes happening in the supply chain, um, what's the chatter in the boardroom if you're an executive uh, that's actually making a lot of the decisions and holds the purse strings? Um, what are they talking about? So, you know, I have to go anecdotally here. I'm, I'm only in one boardroom officially, <laughs> but as far as what I hear from, you know, going up and down the chain, certainly communication. So how do we get tighter on our communication? There were many missteps in the beginning um, that were just reactionary, such as essential worker. And again, there that became, um, if 
people would say, you know, it's now we kind of know, but originally it was like only essential workers report, but yet you were required to be at home and, and, and be online all day. And they're like, well, then I am a essential worker. So, mm. oh no, it's, it's distancing that we need, not, not that you're not important. So it's the messaging that they're trying, they're getting better at and tighter at. Um, and then McKenzie did a survey saying that 93% of all these executives across industries and geographies, um, they plan to increase their level of resiliency. So, you know, we'll see what that means, mm. but it's resonating. It's becoming, where are vulnerabilities? A lot of my work comes from that question. We've been asked, where are we vulnerable and mm. what do we do about it? Um, and then, you know, back to, to saying, you know, what will they really do about it in their messaging? I just love the way FedEx did the um, the vaccine rollout, being part of Operation Warp Speed. But, you know, Fred Smith all the way down, he said, there is no higher priority than this vaccine distribution. And if you really think about it, no higher priority. I've been in so many situations where we say, this is a top priority, yeah. but we have seven of them. And just that phrasing of there's not one higher than this was extremely clear for their, you know, I would say flawless. I'm sure there are flaws. I don't know about it, but execution of, of rolling that out um, and driving the time and the urgency of a company of that size. So um, they say they're going to, you know, the, the boardrooms all recognize it yet, how they're going to act on it and how their financial side is going to tolerate the added expense. I think yeah. remains to be seen. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so final thoughts then, uh, what do you think is on the horizon? Uh, what do you think we'll be talking about uh, in, in you know, the future supply chain podcast? What do you think is um, uh, are things that we're going to be seeing? So I think the what we've talked about um, up to here, that I think there's two things. So one, the supply chain resiliency, I think that that's going to start registering in um, CEO calls and board reports and earnings reports. I think that they'll start sharing um, the, the the investments they're making and how they're protected. But as far as really cool supply chain stuff, new and interesting, I think the biomanufacturing is gonna um, kind of be the cool and unique thing. We saw how fast the vaccines rolled out, but let's talk about you know the biomanufacturing of it and how you handle it because it's totally different than what we do now. Um, when you're dealing with, you know, T cells, cancer cells and moving them around, you know, the chain of custody is extremely important because you have to figure out the patient you're harvesting from, then the patient it goes back to and managing that. And another one that's gonna be unique for the biomanufacturing that we've not um, talked about a lot, but I, I would love to see the next podcast on it but um, in the supply chain, when you're dealing with the human side of it and the biomanufacturing, you have upstream changes in this case, such as a patient's status or their diagnosis could change in the middle of the cell manufacturing that you're doing to go back to that patient. So how do those changes propagate back down through the data management to, you know, to flag the downstream um, shipping where the product goes, how much time you have. Um, I think, you know, manufacturing, cell manufacturing, while it's en route to get back to the patient, how do we transport some of the that work to be work in, in transit? 
Um, I just think that whole area is super exciting and yeah. will will become more commonplace in our discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and how do you keep changing that too, right? As the world changes. So what might make sense for your product uh, and your company today uh, that might look very different, uh, you know, a few years down the line, because say for instance, you know, customer choices, customer behavior has changed because of certain incidents and whatnot. So kind of being able to keep that changing uh, and still uh, being able to make sure that it's uh, it's relevant for your specific use case. Um, um, is but what's that's, yeah, and that's the definition of resilience, right? Because you don't know yep. if we knew it's just preparedness. Yep. So that is the resilience. You don't know what that change is going to be. It's just going to be how quickly you can adapt to it. So yep. true. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contact us at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from the Vaccine Challenge.